This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The City of the End of Things by Archibald Lampman. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs just under five minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The City at the End of Things by Archibald Lampman Beside the pounding cataracts of midnight streams unknown to us, Tis builded in the leafless tracts and valleys huge of Tartarus. Lurid and lofty and vast it seems, it hath no rounded name that rings, but I have heard it called in dreams the City of the End of Things. Its roofs and iron towers have grown, none knoweth how high within the night. But in its murky streets far down, a flaming terrible and bright shakes all the stalking shadows there, across the walls, across the floors, and shifts upon the upper air. From out a thousand furnace doors, and all the while an awful sound keeps roaring on continually, and crashes in the ceaseless round of a gigantic harmony. Through its grim depths re-echoing, and all its weary height of walls, with measured roar and iron ring, the inhuman music lifts and falls. Where no thing rests and no man is, and only fire and night hold sway, the beat, the thunder, and the hiss cease not, and change not night nor day. And moving at unheard commands, the abysses and vast fires between, flit figures that with clanking hands obey a hideous routine. They are not flesh, they are not bone, they see not with the human eye, but from their iron lips is blown a dreadful and monotonous cry, and whoso of our mortal race should find that city unaware Lean death would smite him face to face, and blanch him with its venomed air. Or caught by the terrific spell, each thread of memory snapped and cut, his soul would shrivel, and its shell go rattling like an empty nut. It was not always so, but once, in days that no man thinks upon, fair voices echoed from its stones, The light above it leapt and shone. Once there were multitudes of men that built their city in their pride, until its might was made, and then they withered age by age and died. But now of that prodigious race, three only in an iron tower, set like carved idols face to face, remain the masters of its power, and at the city gate a fourth, gigantic and with dreadful eyes, sits looking towards the lightless north, beyond the reach of memories. Fast rooted to the lurid floor, a bulk that never moves a jot, in his pale body dwells no more, or mind or soul, an idiot. 
But sometimes in the end those three shall perish and their hands be still, and with their master's touch shall flee their incommunicable skill. A stillness absolute as death along the slacking wheels shall lie, and flagging at a single breath the fires that moulder out and die. The roar shall vanish at its height, and over that tremendous town the silence of eternal night shall gather close and settle down. All its grim grandeur, tower and hall shall be abandoned utterly, and into rust and dust shall fall from century to century. Nor ever living thing shall grow, nor trunk of tree, nor blade of grass, no drop shall fall, no wind shall blow, nor sound of any foot shall pass. Alone of its accursed state, one thing the hand of time shall spare, for the grim idiot at the gate is deathless and eternal there. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Eric. And today we're going to talk about the city of the uh, sorry the city of the end of things by Archibald Lampman. This is uh, the first poem I went crazy about when I read Archibald Lampman. It's not the first Archibald Lampman poem. I uh, maybe it's the second one I went crazy about. I've read three Arch no four Archibald Lampman poems. And I'm like, this guy's amazing. Where'd he come from? How come I never heard of him before? Um, and one of my students brought it to my attention. Apparently, you know, he's writing an essay about Canadiana, some sort of uh, trying to find a theme of Canadian writings. And he somehow found this author. And uh, I was blown away. I'd never heard of this guy. Um, what did you guys think when you first read it? <laughs> uh, I was very surprised because I've never heard of him. And this poem in particular, it seems to tie into so much earlier weird poetry and later weird poetry. I'm, I was surprised I hadn't come across him before, but doing a bit of research, apparently he died very young mm. um, and was kind of well-known in his day and then pretty much forgotten as the taste in literature moved on, which... Uh, I think that was the fate of a lot of early uh, 20th century poets of the old classical structures and stanza layouts and rhyming patterns suddenly really fell out of favor with sort of the like of Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot and poetry went modern and no one had time for the uh, more mannered forms of old. And certainly that's what happened to the poems of Clark Ashton Smith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very popular, fated at the time, and then fashion changed and now not even a footnote in American poetry. He was uh, Clark Ashton Smith was on the on the cover, and if not on the cover, he was one week in in North America. He was on, in every newspaper, uh, being like must have been a slow news week because I've never <laughs> seen this before. But he was like child prodigy out of California writes amazing poetry, and then a little picture of him. Uh, it was like wow, that's a different time period. But yeah, he's he's completely forgotten in poetry circles. But he was super mainstream, and I think Lampman was, he was mainstream at the time as well, but now, I guess poetry's not mainstream anymore, <clears throat> part of it. What not about you, Eric? 
I think that poetry. I just had the uh, recently had the the lovely opportunity to go and see Hamilton on Broadway. Mm. Uh, poetry is definitely still mainstream. The problem is that poetry without music, that mm. is actual melody, doesn't seem to be mainstream anymore. But but the taste for for rhyme and verbal invention. It's something that I believe is, I actually believe that it's it's evolutionarily pro-adaptive. I think that language and the ability to use it in ways that are conspicuous as a demonstration of individual invention, cleverness, uh, capacity to find and uh, solve challenges is as important as the ability to display one's physical attributes in mate getting and gene replication. Mm. I'm, I'm not joking here. No, and I agree so, with you. <laughs> so the question then becomes, perhaps, that, that word fashion. Um, you know, there's fa there's a book called Dr. Bowdler's Legacy, uh, which obviously is about Bowdlerization. You know, uh, here's Shakespeare, and we're going to make him clean for the kiddies. Um, in the introduction to this book, I recall reading years and years ago that Walter Scott uh, was uh, sent a, a bunch of novels to his aunt, his elderly aunt, uh, who I guess... Uh, wrote back to him. I'm paraphrasing now. I read this long ago, but she wanted she wanted some reading material. He sent it to her, and she sent them back with a note that said, in effect, I remember in my youth reading novels, and she mentions Ephra Bain in there, um, with great pleasure. And now I find that I cannot because they are immoral. <laughs> and the connection that she showed, that she reports between her nominally aesthetic reaction and her sense of cultural fitness that has changed in part, I imagine, because of her age, but in part because of the change of the culture, uh, is, I think, very, very important that, you know, in America, uh, and I gather from from the the movies in in England as well. There was a period in the 1920s when the sexiest women were all flat chested, and then there was a period in the 1950s when the sexiest women were enormously uh, mammary, and now <laughs> they're somewhere in between. And I can't believe that women just changed biologically. Fashion changed, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and senses of, of desirability changed, and of beauty changed. And when I read a poem like this, which has not perfect but almost perfect uh, rhyme and rhythm, uh, I personally like it very much. But I think that many people, if you were to ask them, how do you define doggerel? they would say, oh, well, you know, it just goes trotting along perfectly evenly. And then if you show them something like uh, Alexander Pope, who, in fact, almost always, almost always trots along perfectly evenly, they go, hmm, well, I guess it could be all right. So we have this sense of fashion, but fashion isn't just uh, 
a passing whim that happens to uh, hit lots of people all at once, fashion, I think, goes deeper and actually affects our aesthetic sense. So when I read, read this poem and I saw that he was, uh, Lampman was referred to as the Canadian Keats, to me, that's terrific. I like romantic poetry. So maybe the guy is, by chronology, a little late to the game, but that doesn't make the poem worse for me. But let's face it, except for quoting famous lines, as you say, romantic poetry, uh, that is, I mean, poetry by the canonical romantics, Wordsworth and so on, um, isn't in fashion anymore. That mm. didn't make the poem worse. It meant people read it differently. So all of this is a long answer to the question, what did I think of it? I thought, this is a pretty well done poem. Uh, too bad most people aren't going to uh, <laughs> feel that unless they slow down and open themselves up to somebody else's fashion. I I totally agree with you. Um, I I also happened. I don't know how it happened, but I ended up following uh, somebody whose name is Archibald Lampman on Twitter. Um, and uh, you know, as people do that, they take the name of some famous person and then just tweet about whatever. Sometimes they're not really tweeting about that person. They just stole the name and sort of using it. But in this case, this person is writing uh, a biography of. Lampman, it sounds like, um, and he, he. I've been following his tweets, and um, one of the things that I I seem to have read based on one of those tweets was that Lampman confessed that that comparison to Keats was like annoying to him, and the reason was it it was true, and that he felt he hadn't found his own voice yet. Um, at least at some point early in his writings, and he didn't have. Yeah, he didn't live that long, but um, this is something that Lovecraft expressed uh, about, you know, his own, he's got his Poe stories, he's got his Dunsany stories, but where are my Lovecraft stories? Um, something that he eventually, I think, pretty pretty solidly made, but you can feel the Poe in his stuff, and you can feel the Dunsany, even if the timeline doesn't run up. It, he seems to be not have found his voice perfectly but here um it's striking to me because it's almost lovecraftian in that he's doing cosmicism uh, at least in some of the other poems i don't feel cosmicism as much in in this one but um this is a dream poem um he literally says i've i but heard it called in dreams the city at the is the city of the end of things um and and the depth of what I guess we settled when we did a show on um, uh, a poem, a sonnet of Lampman's called uh, A Thunderstorm on Reading Short and Deep. What we settled as the term was multivalent uh, for understanding what every sentence meant. How it has many meanings. I feel that here as well. Um, and the the depth of construction of this vision is astounding to me. It's it's amazing to feel, and it, you if you read it quickly, I think you can miss a lot of it. But just the more I I look back at this poem, I, the more I see it's 
its structure is it's deep the the circles the ups and downs the absence and presence of things and what it hints at it doesn't feel like a poem from 1894 it feels like a poem from post-world war ii or 1945 to me this is a fascinating and deep poem so um i think we should read it again and uh take it slow who who would like to uh to go through first time <clears throat> should i you know i i personally would like to hear uh, jim read it i i love your voice yep but no I, problem thank good. you but but I would, if I might, I, I want to sort of exemplify this notion of multivalence, um, just so that that as we listen to it, we can try to to listen in many layers at once. Although I have a feeling this poem needs to be read aloud more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you called it a dream poem, and the in the first bit of the poem, uh, the speaking voice says, "But I have heard it called in dreams." the city of the end of things. And that phrase, I have heard it called in dreams. Right away, there are multiple ways to understand that line. If one mm-hmm. thinks of it, um, it could be that I say to you, say, you know, I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw this place. It's the city of the end of things. And in fact, if many people share the same image in their own dreams that then when I have heard it called in dreams, the city of the end of things, it could be a report of the speaking voice of many other people reporting their own experiences. Or it could be, I have heard it called in dreams, a recurrent dream that this fellow has, the speaking voice has. Mm -hmm. And, And many times in his dreams, he's heard it called that. And then if he hears it called in dreams that rather than meaning I have thought that I am in the city of the end of things in my dream again and again, the recurring dream, that in his dream, one could imagine, for instance, that he comes upon a city previously unknown to him and says to the dream counterpart whom he meets, and what is this place? And in his dream, he meets someone else who says, I have heard it called who says this is the city of the end of things. Such a simple phrase, I have heard it called in dreams. That little tiny phrase already has at least three different ways of understanding it. And I am only using that as an example because that, the city of the end of things is the title. Um, I just sort of like to, to prime myself at least, if not others, for trying to listen in a multivalent way because, Jesse, I think you're absolutely right. Um, there is so much more going on in this poem, but it's not simply because, as it is so often, well, this symbolizes that, or mm-hmm. this is allusion to that, but rather one can look at it ontologically and epistemologically in many different ways simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that's that. I'm, I hope, Jim, that you don't mind. That was that was meant to prime your listeners to your beautiful voice. <laughs> not at all. Not at all, sir. Um, Okay. Do you want to read the, go through the whole thing or in chunks? Why don't we do it in chunks? And uh, okay. Uh, 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 so, 
Um, in the version that I'm holding in my hand, there's three big stanzas. Um, there is a earlier publication that has it in, um, I think, five stanzas. But uh, wherever you stop, we can stop. <laughs> um, okay, I'll stop. <clears throat> the city of the end of things. Beside the pounding cataracts of midnight streams unknown to us. Tis builded in the dismal tracts and valleys huge of Tartarus. Lurid and lofty and vast it seems. It hath no rounded name that rings. But I have curled, <coughs> excuse me, but I have heard it called in dreams, the city of the end of things. Its roofs and iron towers have grown, none knoweth how high within the night. But in its murky streets far down, a flaming and terrible and bright shakes all the stalking shadows there. Across the walls, across the floors, and shifts upon the upper air from out a thousand furnace doors. And all the while an awful sound keeps roaring on continually and crashes in the ceaseless round of a gigantic harmony. Through its grim depths re-echoing and all its weary height of walls with measured roar and iron ring the inhuman music lifts and falls where no thing rests and no man is and only fire and night hold sway. The beat, the thunder and the hiss cease not and change not night nor day. Wow. <clears throat> uh, what, what this appeared to me to be at first, I don't know, but I see so many things in it now. One of them is uh, the color lurid that word comes up again in the poem um, it's a lurid night which is hard to imagine one of, one of the things I guess I was thinking the first time I read this is this sounds like the city at the end of days like we've got a dying earth story here but Another way of looking at it is it's just the city at the end of humans. And it's an automated factory that's still going. <clears throat> yeah, I read it very much like that. Because this does, it reminds me of some of our, a lot of Clark Ashton Smith's poems and some of his stories. And my first reading was, it's a city at the end of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then reading it again, as you know, as you do when you record it, it makes you, you know, come, to, you know, go over a, a work with a finer tooth comb. It struck me, well, is this actually uh, so the end of a civilization? And it's kind of, it's a civilization that arose post humanity, and this is the last, the last, you know, ref, you know, vestiges of a mechanized society. Literally, the end of things we have made. But then I, I thought again, though, is it actually more than that? Is it actually a more abstract place, a place that's literally at the end of the concept of things, mm -hmm. the concept of making and manufacture and industry? Uh, there, <laughs> I, I, I feel I'm bursting with different uh, ways of looking at what we've, we've already heard of this. 
for one, it seems to me that uh, without being familiar with all of Lampman's poetry, although I know his collected works are available now online, uh, it seems to me that this poem is much more a Canadian Shelley than it is a Canadian Keats. Mm. Um, What this brings to my mind is not the sort of nature poetry that one often thinks of, uh, you know, hail to the blithe spirit. Um, This is like Ozymandias. Mm -hmm. And Mm. this is, you know, we've, we've come upon the works of man. This is not a, this is not poetry saying, Let's look at nature, which, by the way, we're not going to really talk about this, is a reflection of human beings, but le- but it goes on. You see, the nature nature goes on, but let's look at the works of men and realize that perhaps they do not go on. Uh, so, you know, uh, whether or not we should call him a Keats or a Shelley is uh, not itself a very useful thing to do, but to understand what we mean by the use of a poetry of things, whether it's the things of nature or the things of man that we or humanity that we look at, that makes a difference, I think. And this is a poem of of the things that have been created. But also, I have to ask, <clears throat> what is the what does the word of mean? The first word of in the city of the end of things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Right? Is it is it a city about the end of things? Is it a city that we get when we get to the end of things? Um, is the end of things the telos of things? Is the making of things somehow um, a way of removing humanity and letting us see an ultimate? Dismal, I think, was the word that I heard you reading, Jim, although in the version I have, it's leafless tracts, not dismal. Um, So there's been a little bit of change between the versions. Uh, What do we mean by the end of things? Is it just is it is it teleology or is it simply description? Uh, And it seems to me that as I hear this sonorous description of all of the things that no longer seem hospitable to whoever made them murky streets and flaming and so on. Uh, This inhospitable description, excuse me, description of inhospitable things. um, I wonder, are we to see this as a presage of what it is that the dreamer whether it's the individual or other individuals who report the dream uh, of, of what the world will become, or is it a presage of what their own works will become the, the total of what their own life will have meant. And in that it's very much like, like Shelley, it seems to me, and certainly like the romantic poems, uh, only nature manages to persist when we project ourselves into it, we are, in fact, alone, wandering lonely as a cloud. It's almost like an inverse an inversion of 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 the idea that nature will persist. This is the creations of man persisting, and past a, at least a certain point. We'll get, I guess, that later later on in the poem as well. But um, one of the one of the things I'm doing on my notes is it's just like looking at what words mean and then 
you know, writing them down and then seeing, oh, that these patterns come again and again. So the very first one is in the first and uh, the second and third lines. Uh, how's it go? Beside the pounding cataracts of midnight streams unknown to us, tis builded in the leafless tracts. And I'm like, what are leafless tracts? Uh, well, that's lands with no leaves, right? But also, it's books without pages. <laughs> mm, and, nice. And it, it almost turns into, you can, in that multivalent or at least bivalent way of looking at it, you can make a decision early on. This is a fantasy, or this is a science fiction, right? This is one or the other. <laughs> and I think you can have it both ways. Um, obviously, the dream gives you some sort of uh, idea, but then again, dreams can be visions, and vision of the future is what we do all the time in science fiction, right? So uh, it seems so early to be a science fiction story, but there's so much evidence that it could be read that way that you pretty much can't deny it, is what I would say. Um, well, so yeah. back then there wasn't the distinct genre distinctions we make. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean uh, Poe wrote stories that are detective fiction, horror stories, psychological stories, and science fiction. Yep. Uh, and, and this poem in particular, particularly the very first, um, in the version I was just reading from, uh, the first stanza it's broken into, it reminded me straight away of Dreamland by Poe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, very much which, so. You know, is, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of you know, bottomless veils and boundless floods and chasms and caves and titan woods with forms that no man can discover for the tears that drip all over. And whereas Dreamland seems to be a similar dream vision, but it's looking towards a pastoral, gothic, admittedly, and nightmarish, but pastoral nonetheless landscape. And, and one very much, yeah, and very much bound in human emotion. Um, this seems to be looking in a in a different direction, whereas Poe is kind of that the idea of gothic. You're always looking back. This is very much looking forward, and it's looking forward to a point where everything's been forgotten. And so, in the piece I read, there's numerous times we have shadows, echoes, mm-hmm. um, rings, and rounded, and this idea of psych. You know, this is subliminal, almost subliminal sort of idea of us. You know, as this is part of a cycle the end of a a cycle of which you know everything is reaching some sort of nadir where everything's continuing but no one knows why or even who made it anymore mm-hmm. but it's continuing because that's it is still part it's the end of a phase i want to you gen- oh, oh, <clears throat> sorry go for it eric well you gentlemen are 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 giving me yet another way of reading this poem that is, the poem is the city, and it's made yeah. of the end of things. The, the, and the poem becomes the city. That, that, that idea that leafless tracts can also be read as books without books um, is, is wonderful. I really like that, Jesse. And I want to return to those those lines you just pointed us to to talk about this multivalence and the, the skill of the poet. The phrase unknown to us, I would mm-hmm. like to suggest, can be read 
in one direction, and I'm picking up, Jim, your notion of fore or, va- or aft here in time, it can be read in one direction as an adjective and in another direction as an adverb. Beside the pounding cataracts of midnight streams unknown to us. So unknown to us is an adjective that uh, modifies the midnight streams. <clears throat> Beside the pounding cataracts of midnight streams unknown to us tis builded in the leafless tracts. So unknown to us is how the building happens. Mm-hmm. It becomes an, an adverb def- modifying the building. It's, it's, it's extraordinary mm-hmm. the way in which we get multiple meanings here. And once we see, uh, and I mean that word advisedly, that what we are about to look at could be the city of the end of things, which had not been written, then there is a derivative meaning of cataracts, which is, after all, mm-hmm. not just the waterfall, but the thing that blinds us and mm-hmm. makes it yes. impossible for us to see. Um it's it's extraordinary, uh, extraordinary the way in which the language is being multiplied here. I, I I I love that you can also apply that unknown to us is his modest way of saying I I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to write this poem down and see what happens. <laughs> He's referring to himself, you know, and and it's so great that he I mean. How much of this is his plan? You know, you say, Jesse, good job uh, seeing that thing. Well, I I think that that's Lampman. And I'm like, wow, I I saw something he put in there. But maybe he didn't. Maybe it's it's he's allowing these things to come in. And he is is careful in choosing his words to allow this multivalence. But so many of the things are repeated images. Again, the word things, right? Uh, are repeated here and i love just starting off the poem with this first little opening stanza you've got um the problem of this city has no name but actually another way of reading it listen it it hath no rounded name that rings so it has a name but it might be you know mega city 10 or <laughs> mega city <laughs> 422 right it, there's it's not a name that you would want to hear about right um, and when I'm writing rounded, no name, I'm ra- writing it in a circle. Well, next part of this poem, we go a little farther and crashes in the ceaseless round. Right. So it's there's this sense of gears turning. And and then the next part the is the verticality and the depth. Right. So we have through its grim depths reechoing. And all its weary height of walls. Wow. The walls are weary or looking at them would make you weary. With measured roars and iron ring, the inhuman music lifts and falls. This is actually, it's like a, uh, this could be a clock. (laughs) Except for all the fire. And this could be, it's all mechanistic. And and I, I, I visualize the, the, old-fashioned you know foundry kind of factory where they're making i don't know rail for railroads (laughs) everything in this poem makes the city completely uninhabitable and yet we're going to see some inhabitants we could also see this as astronomy 
Mm. Right? The ceaseless round of gigantic mm. harmony is the music of the spheres as well as anything else. Sure. Right? Mm. That's, that doesn't need us. And it is, in fact, an awful sound, the music of the spheres, because it is full of awe for us when we realize what's going on, that we finally come to understand the way the stars move. And so we have these wow. thousand furnace doors. They can be the stars in the, in the skies, right? And, and yet, so the, there are rounded names. I mean, what is a rounded name? Right, uh, bubbles. Yeah, <laughs> radar. Right. Yeah. So, what is a rounded name? Well, the, the names of the 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 things that go on in ceaseless harmony could be the rounded names. Right. They are the the fixed stars, and therefore that this has no rounded name may mean that these are not the fixed harmony. These are the things that go around this this fixed harmony they they in fact wander they are the planets these are the inhabited places like the earth which of course wouldn't have been known when the term the stars planetes was you know wandering stars was first used but but it's known now and it's known at the time this poem is written so a place that doesn't have that is a sublunary place it's a place of intelligent creation rather than simply the fixed nature. And I'm not saying this in exclusion to anything else that mm. we've just seen. I'm saying it in addition to what else we've have seen. Yeah. I, I, I see it now. None knoweth how high within mm. the night, right? It, that depth and, and height that is, Looking at the stars. When I first read the poem, I'm pretty sure I thought it was set in hell. <laughs> and in a uh, way, it is, for sure. <laughs> because you would not want to live in yeah. that city, and n none can, really. Um, but the only real word that connects it in any way to hell is that of Tartarus. But it doesn't say in Tartarus. It says of Tartarus. Is builded in the leafless tracks and valleys huge of Tartarus. It's like those Titan woods in Dreamland. It's also Tartarus is ambiguous because in mm -hmm. Greek mythology it is a place and a being. Nice. Yes. Because um, he's one of the Tartarus. He's um, uh, part of a trio along with Chaos and Gaia. Oh. And is in part. He's sort of in the, the great sort of family tree of the deities, and um, it, it's Tartarus is, you know, according to Hesiod, you know, from then you, we get uh, Eros and the more familiar gods from these more kind of like Chaos Earth uh, and Tartarus. Wow. But it's, it's also, it's a, I believe it's also a, a, cinema, a synonym for a, or an area in Hades, um, and I himself believe, also a place and a man. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was imprisoned, defeated Titans. I remember right when I think they were imprisoned in Tartarus. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got some imprisoned Titans in here as well, don't we? Yes, yeah. Uh, actually, imprisoned Cyclopses, who were imprisoned by Kronos, king of the Titans. Let's, uh, uh, let's... Where, when Zeus dethroned Kronos, who was called Time. 
he uh, he released the imprisoned giants to to war against the titans and overthrow them. So it's just a nice bit of cyclic uh, <laughs> cyclic but fate course, there as well. Mm. In in Hesiod, I, I think Hesiod is as if I recall this um, correctly is the oldest reference we have in Western civilization to the notion of the the ages, the gold, silver, iron, and bra- brass and iron. Mm. Uh, and it's written in the Iron Age. Each of these cycles, uh, which is from Hesiod's Theogony, I believe, um, each of these cycles recurs but also degrades. And so mm. the city of the end of things would be, in a way, the last of the cycles, which is why it is a vision. It's a dream. It's a forecast of what will come eventually when we get the cycle the very last time, uh, the heat death of the universe. Mm-hmm. Everything turns to chaos. Uh, this reminds me of um, another vision in a dream. Who's uh, the author of of um, the man from Porlock? <laughs> Coleridge. Coleridge. Samuel yes. Taylor Coleridge, mm. right? This um, this is like that as well. The um, the uh, unfinished dream poem of of uh, what is it? Cataracts, isn't it? Waterfalls falling it evermore. Into dreams without. Oh, now I've lost it. Um, while I look that up, I want you guys to chew on this last sentence in the in the part that Jim read and tell me what you see there because I I have notes extensively, but here I don't know what to make of it. Through its grim depths, re-echoing and all its weary height of walls, with measured roar and iron ring, the inhuman music lifts and falls where no thing rests and no man is and only fire and night hold sway the beat the thunder and the hiss cease not and change not night or day so we have night and day but it's always night there that that's i guess why i thought it was underground and it was in the center of the earth or something like that and i guess you can read it that way but Am I wrong in thinking that maybe this is like a dying earth story that the this there's night and day sure but the sun is not, absent. Can you have night and day with well I I would read those as uh, they don't change. They don't change at night and they don't change in the day. Because the day and the night are changing they're part of that ceaseless harmony. Uh, that celestial, well, celestial makes it sound heavenly rather than astronomical. That's astronomical. That's na- mm-hmm. natural. It's physical. It, they don't change in the night or in the day. But no human beings are there. That is, this is uh, this is almost like uh, the the end of industrial the industrial world where, where the machines are going on, but there are no mortals. Things that cannot things that can die are not there anymore. Right. And it says that our mortal race would later on, uh, we'd be unaware that it's machines that go on. It's this gigantic harmony. So they re-echo in in the depths. And I see that it's Tartarus um, as hell 
as well as Tartarus the god. Uh, but these are depths that are philosophical depths because whoever made these machines is no longer of need at all. There is no place for the makers in the, the environment that they have made. These become grim depths where the heights of the walls are weary. Uh, how is the height weary? It's weary because we look at it and we just look at it and we look at it with measured roar and iron ring. The inhuman music lifts and falls. I, I just hear a clattering industrial world here, um, which we have seen. You know, the uh, the machine stops, which yeah. comes. <clears throat> right. Yeah, and that's only a couple of years later. It, there's something there's something amazing going on beneath the surface in this period where where some people are envisioning I think uh, uh, the where it all ends, right? When the machine stops. And in thinking about it and thinking about how what came out in in the previous I do. I'm looking at uh, Kublai Khan right now, and it feels like it's the. It's like that is a vision of a kind of heaven, right? A beautiful place, a wonderful place, and this is a kind of vision of hell. Um, uh, well, of course, that we're talking about a difference of of eight, eight decades. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, Coleridge. Coleridge is thrilled by the railroads, whereas in the time machine, which is just five years earlier than, I mean, it's 1895, Lampman dies in 1899. Um, in the time machine, human beings have become utterly effete or monstrous. Uh, that That's all that's left. The machines go on, and all that's left for us to do is fix them. But by Lampman, um, we don't even need to fix them. Yeah, we are uh, utterly useless. And and of course that in the time machine you've got you've got both the heaven and the hell, right? The hell mm. of the underworld, all mechanized and and those who live there, and the the garden above that is it seems beautiful until the night comes, right? Every, yes. There's there's it, the entire world is a garden. There's no predators on, on the surface of the earth during the day, anyways. Um, let me just read. Uh, Kublai Khan here and see if we can find a, uh, a, a, well, a little bit of it and see how it has this, a similar uh, structure and length, but also the opposite kind of feel. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round and there were gardens bright and sinuous rills, bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, and folding sunny spots of greenery. So we've got <laughs> virtually the opposite kind of feel of this place. Yes, it's 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 a city, Xanadu, but it's it's more pastoral than anything else, right? And it's full of sunlight and blossoms. Here, the leaves are bare. If I may, Jess, mm -hmm. uh, Jesse, um, Coleridge at the beginning of the uh, 19th century or near the beginning of the 19th century has a dream. And as you say, it's a dream interrupted, famously interrupted. Um, 
has a dream about a river called Alf. Mm-hmm. And one could suggest that if there is a city around a, a river. Oh, ringing, God. I just saw it, where you're going with this. <laughs> exactly. That the, the river ringing the city of the end of things is Omega. Of course. Yes. Fascinating. Uh, Mr. Jim Moon, will you continue? Certainly. <clears throat> Moving at unheard commands, the abysses vast and far. <clears throat> Sorry, start again. And moving at unheard commands, the abysses and vast fires between, flit figures that, with clanking hands, obey a hideous routine. They are not flesh, they are not bone, they see not with the human eye. And from their iron lips is blown a dreadful and monotonous cry. And whoso of our mortal race should find that city unaware, lean death would smite him face to face and blanch him with its venomed air. Or caught by the terrific spell, each thread of memory snapped and cut, his soul would shrivel and its shell go rattling like an empty nut. It was not always so, but once, in days that no man thinks upon, fair voices echoed from its stones, the light above it leapt and shone. Once there were multitudes of men that built that city in their pride, until its might was made, and then they withered age by age and died. And now of that prodigious race, Three only in an iron tower, set like carven idols face to face, remain the masters of its power. And at the city gate of Forth, gigantic with dreadful eyes, sits looking towards the lightless north, beyond the reach of memories, fast rooted to the lurid floor, a bulk that never moves a jot, in his pale body dwells no more or mind or soul, an idiot. Wow. So huh. I was saying, it's robots! I have a big exclamation <laughs> point beside it. Um, it's robots, right? That's or one Cyberman. way of reading it, isn't it? It's <laughs> automata, at least. Mm. And, and they're, I mean, listen to this. Moving at unheard commands. So, to me, that could be they're programmed. Or it could be those three in the tower, you know, they're just pressing buttons and, and you know, moving things around the, the factory floor below. Um, clearly, this cannot be simply uh, a fantasy of... I mean, I guess you could go to... This is uh, Hephaestus, right? And his... his uh, his factory, which he's got a robot owl or whatever, or automat <laughs> automaton owl, but they have got lips, but they don't have bones. But they they're not made of bone and they're not made of flesh. They see, but not with a human eye. And they have iron lips. Well, I, I assume that <laughs> that's a little more metaphorical. I don't know if you need lips if you're a robot. <laughs> But they also blow a dreadful and monotonous cry. I just think of, like, imagine you're in one of those warehouses, you know, at the docks. And you hear the backing up sound of, 
of various vehicles as they say clear the path clear the path right or the dump truck or the garbage truck right we're so used to these automated sounds now 1894 i don't i don't know how much of this they had you know backup sounds and car alarms and all that stuff but obviously somebody was thinking about this stuff it's amazing this is uh it seems to me absolutely right. We can we can metaphorize the pieces of the machine easily enough, right? The the maw of the machine is sure. where the coal goes in. You know? But I, I would like to to not only agree with you, but also again go back to the the exquisite control of language that Lampman gives here. I the the poem is. Almost, I, I may have missed something here, but I think that with one exception, the poem is iambic tetrameter, um, rhyming A-B-A-B. Mm-hmm. So, you know, although it's not put on the page as uh, four as quatrains, in fact, they are quatrains and they are absolutely regular. Um, I'd like to, to back up just a little bit to the end of, uh, near the end of, of what, you were reading. Um, and so our, and, and who so of, and I'm going to try to emphasize the rhythm and who so of our mortal race should find that city unaware lean death would smite him face to face and blanch him with its venomed air or caught by the terrific caught by the terrific spell or caught by the terrific spell each thread of memory it's each sorry each thread of memory snapped and cut his soul would shrivel and its shell go rattling like an empty nut if i read that correctly finally got it right it's it's perfect iambic pentameter you have to tetrameter although you have to say memory as memory for example right but that empty nut at the end of that absolutely perfect, if you like, mechanical, right, machine-like mm-hmm. language, that empty nut, a nut, after all, is is a seed. I'm putting aside the, uh, the English use of it uh, for a testy. Um, an empty nut is what you would plant, uh, but it wouldn't grow. Right. That the, the, what's what you get with an empty nut. Think of a walnut in which the the innards have shriveled away and it's no longer productive. That's why it's it's rattling. That's why the word shrivel is there. It is as if the soul were the thing that could eventually proceed to to efflorate, to to come out with new life. But now in that city, we of our mortal race, if we came upon this without thinking about it, we wouldn't do that. If we industrialize the world and don't realize what we're doing, we can't get there at all. But, and now comes another quatrain. It was not always so, but once in days that no man thinks upon, fair voices echoed from its stones, the light above it, it leaped and shone. Now, you guys, please, if you can, try it yourselves. I think that although this is a mellifluous quatrain, it is, in fact, the only quatrain in the poem that is not perfect iambic tetrameter. It can't be read as iambic tetrameter. Right? You have to chain, you have to put some trochees in there. You have to reverse the iams. 
to make this scan. And the reason I point that out is this is the quatrain that says there was a prelapsarian time. Mm-hmm. That, that it's gorgeous. If, if what I'm suggesting here is correct, the perfect poetry is the poetry of the mechanized. And the mechanized is ultimately the problem. We can foresee this in our dreams. Mm-hmm. But what is humanly perfect is the mortal, the thing that can die, the thing that, in fact, is not perfect. And although it can be mellifluous, it must, in fact, be variable. We don't get just I ams. We get I ams and trochees. We have to make our prelapsarian time, our time before we've created a world that will bring about our own end, something we have to we have to have the possibility of change. And that possibility is, in fact, in the rhythm of that quatrain that begins with it once was not always so. Please look that way to me anyway. Mm hmm. This is um, this is a very mysterious section of the poem as well. It's all pretty mysterious, but um, it, it, here's my reading of it. First, first blush, anyways. People built this city. They built it really well. They were very proud of it. Now they're dead. Except there's three who stick around. Uh, now I notice it says of men. So maybe these are women, but I don't know. I think that that might be reading too much into it. Until its might was made and then, they withered age by age and died. But now of that prodigious race, three only in an iron tower, set like carved idols face to face, remain the masters of its power. So in my my illustration I did for this, after reading this with my students, I have uh, three people in a tower and uh, they are set face to face to each other, but they're also like hooked up to VR gear, you know, <laughs> like they've got little masks over their faces and outside the window, you know, you can see the burning of the city far below. And there's a robot, you know, in the room casually moving around. This is um, is uh, kind of a, a nightmare vision. Are these the controllers of the city? That remain, because the next line remain the masters of its power. Um, are they just simply relying on the automation, or are they they're running it for some purpose? It's very mysterious. And then, mystery upon mystery, there's a fourth who doesn't act in the same way and looks different. Um, so. I don't know what to make of this section. <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated, and for some reason, this reminds me a lot of a poem uh, Mr. Jim Moon and I discussed um, uh, called "Dreams of Yith." What do you think oh, about yes, that, yes. Mr. Jim Moon? Mm. <clears throat> it does remind me of that, but it also reminds me of the Nightland. Oh yes, by, by William Hope Hodgson, particularly the the. Um, the fourth master 
who is just this huge sentinel right. sentinel staring out into the darkness. Yes. Uh, and it reminds me of those uh, the great terrible things that we never show sure whether they're idols or beings that are just well, they're almost like a threat encroaching on the last city of men uh, in the Nightland. I mean, my reading is it's kind of they are humans who are hooked up to the machine but have now literally become part of the machine and have to say they have no minds or souls anymore they're not human they they are they are dead yet still just live on to as as part of the circuit as it were mm-hmm. um to, to go back to the empty nut it um i don't know if lampman would have been familiar with this i suspect he might have been though but nut is also english slang for an insane person yeah, sure. Oh, he's a nut, or a nutcase. Right. Uh, he's another <laughs> another euphemism. So, so that you know, it kind of both the, these little two stanzas I read seem to end on on a similar note of sort of you know vapid, empty, mindlessness. That works very well for me, Jim. I like that. I'd also like to to suggest that the mindlessness uh, can be understood. As well, if those three are in an iron tower, aren't using the tower as their command center, but in fact are now, perhaps by their own uh, machinations, trapped in the iron tower, right? It's like the man in the iron mask. Uh, These are prisoners uh, by one way of looking at it. They have become nothing but an extension of what they have built. Uh, Jacques Ellul's the uh, technological man, right? We build railroads and they make us run on time. So the the, the going back to the the Greeks, those three um, who are now mindless, they are to human beings at least mindless because they are the fates. Um, but again, this is adding on, not instead of, right? Those those yeah. three in the tower. Um, are the fates that uh, we see that triad in one way or another in, in so many mythologies. So the fourth then who is outside and sits by the gate, the lightless North looking toward the lightless North. Um, who is the fourth? And I'm reminded that, that a single individual who is not a participant with the rest of the community is known in Greek um, as someone who is only concerned with his self, with his id, right? It's, that's the action. He is, in fact, what becomes in modern English an idiot, the citizen who does not participate in the, in the life of the community is the idiot, uh, suggesting to me something resonant with what, what you're suggesting, Jim, that the empty nut is, in fact, mindless. One can see him as not really having uh, a coherent understanding at all. And indeed, how can one when all coherence has been concretized in the city, which is made of the end of things? It's, it's striking what's going on in the relationship between the, th- the three and the one. <sighs> I mean, well, he's called an idiot. You're right. He okay. is. He is. And, and and yet he will persist when they won't. Right. That's one of the things that's said here. It was not always so, but once in days that no man thinks upon, their voices echoed from its stones. The light upon above it leaped and shone. 
once there were multitudes of men that city that built that city in their pride until its might was made and then they withered age by age and died so i'm thinking the the three are the last remainders of the the builders in a certain sense right but now of that prodigious race three only in an iron tower set like carved 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 idols face to face remain the masters of its power so the next and at the city gate a fourth uh, i i i want to picture this person looking like a guard out from the city and uh, there's i think evidence for that and yet sits looking towards the lightless north beyond the reach of memories is he leaving the city has he left the city or does he want to get into the city? Fast rooted to the lurid floor. That's the second time Lurid came up. The first time was in valleys huge of Tartarus, lurid and lofty and vast, it seems. Um, a bulk that never moves a jot. In his pale body dwells no more, or mind, or soul. An idiot. And the, what I would say is that that idiot, you see, is is the the, the one individual that is it's it's idiot. Um, yes, there dwells no mind or soul in that body. Uh, that's the nut reading that Jim just suggested, but also that this is now an individual, and even the individual is no longer productive. That's what's happened uh, because of the overgrowing of the city there is lightlessness in the north that is the north star which could give us guidance mm -hmm. shows us nothing um, and the fact that to be individual is no longer productive that suggests to, to me that the possibility of production in the prelapsarian quatrain where we can see variation having some use it, you see it can create these great cities um, Having created these great cities, it no longer has use. The very possibility of individual achievement is gone. What had been just the individual is now reduced to the idiot. And we've done this to ourselves. It seems to me that, that the, the use of these words is to let us understand the futility of believing that we could bring things to a human perfection. There is, in a sense, a con that's an oxymoron, that human perfection is, in fact, an impossibility. And the choo choice of that word mortal, mortal races, I think, makes that clear. I mean, to define humans as the things that die um, already suggests that they cannot be perfect and go on forever. So that when it says that these three in an iron tower set like carved idols face to face. Who did the setting? Mm -hmm. Who did the setting? Who, who set them there? And then it says, they, these three remain the masters of its power. And again, we could read that they remain there and are the masters of its power, or it could be that the masters of its power remain there. That is, they were the masters of its power, but now there is no mastery. Just as in the time machine, the Eloi 
the upper ground, the 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 the, the degenerate uh, off uh, descendants of those who controlled the machines no longer have any control of the machines. Mm-hmm. There's something there's something strange going on though, um, because the fourth is it, there's uh, there's an exclusion there, and I, I don't know what it means, but at the end. At the end of the poem, which we will get to very shortly, um, the idiot remains, whereas they will die. That's what happens in the in in the next part. Maybe Mr. Jim Moon can read it for us, and then we'll see that there's a prediction. What's going to happen? This is we're seeing the the city as it is at the end mm. of things, but there's a prediction as well about what's going to happen to the city. Okay. But sometime in the end, those three shall perish and their hands be still. And with their master's touch shall flee their incommunicable skill. A stillness absolute as death along the slacking wheels shall lie. And flagging at a single breath, the fires shall smolder out and die. The roar shall vanish at its height. And over that tremendous town, the silence of eternal night shall gather close and settle down. All its grim grandeur, tower and hall, shall be abandoned utterly, and into rust and dust shall fall from century to century. Nor ever living thing shall grow, or trunk of tree or blade of grass, No drop shall fall, no wind shall blow, nor sound of any foot shall pass. Alone of its accursed state, one thing the hand of time shall spare. For the grim idiot at the gate is deathless and eternal there. Beautiful. Ah. So... You read who, good, Jim. He does. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, who is who is this grim idiot, and why is? I mean, is that us looking in? Um, I don't feel. I mean, maybe the first time I read, I was a little bit uh, un. I mean, idiot has a second meaning, right? It's a good guy doesn't know nothing, right? Uh, you don't. Uh, that's where the word idiom comes in, right? If you don't know what an idiom mm. is, you're excluded, right? Um, you just have to know it. That's there's no there's no way of knowing an idiom except knowing it, right? Um, so we've got a capitalization on time as a god coming in. Uh, there's some places where I would have said, oh, he should have capitalized that, and he chooses not to. One of the places he capitalizes is uh, lean death, right? That's mm. that's um, I get it. Um, but the idiot gets a capitalization too. Uh, obviously, to refer back to the previous uh, mention of this guy, or being, or whatever it is. Um, but there's, uh, it's almost like you, you can you cannot be a, of the city. Is he leaving this? Did he leave the city? Is he guarding the city? Is he trying to enter the city? Doesn't say who this idiot is, but. This is all prediction, right? So we've got three in the tower running things. 
And then, but sometime in the end, those three shall perish and their hands be still. So, again, in my drawing, I've got them, you know, I don't know, playing VR games or something. So their hands are active. But sometime in the end, those three shall perish and their hands be still. And with the master's touch shall flee their incommunicable skill. So I assume that they are the masters there, but... Again, you I'm sorry, could, Jesse. Yep. In my text, it's master apostrophe s. Masters, yep. So mm-hmm. those three then wouldn't be the master. Well, it could be uh, sort of a generic master. It, it could be a generic master. I'm just reminded of the notion I, that they are set. I agree, and that's that's why I was thinking like, why isn't master capitalized here? Like, like the one who's really in charge and. Another way of looking at this is is uh, this is what I got from a poem uh, that I believe I got you to read, Eric, called uh, "Voices <laughs> Voices of Earth," and I was blown away by that the multivalency in that poem, um, and I was thinking this is cosmicism. This is the mechanism underneath underneath everything, the physics of reality um, that we don't see. Um, Unless we we try to attune ourselves to sort of the the macroscopic scale of reality, and we see that uh, in in other Lampman poems. But I was I was thinking, if this is all metaphor, right? it's not a vision of the future. Um, if it's all metaphor, then those guys, maybe they're not so so much masters because clearly they're doing something wrong. <laughs> I think there's something wrong going on there. Their incommunicable skill, so it's their incommunicable skill. And with the master's touch, is that God? If it was capitalized, I would say, oh yeah, it's when they die. Their incommunicable skill shall flee. And it's incommunicable. They don't even, I mean, there's, we get... We get to the point where our technology makes everything so easy for us. Maybe you don't need to talk anymore. Um, the latest Apple uh, innovation is uh, em- emojis that look like you. <laughs> right? So you don't have to take a picture of yourself smiling. You can send a emoji of yourself smiling. And, of course, an emoji is a way of not writing something. Like, you know, I love you, or um, it's a beautiful day, or I'm very happy. <laughs> you just send a picture. And, I mean, we do it. I do it all the time. I send a little emoticon in my email. But at some point, we've got to question whether this technology is trapping us in a way of preventing communication. There's something fascinating going on here, and I think that the... And thinking about that idiot as not like a fool, but as one who doesn't know what's going on in that city. And on, uh, I think I there's think, something fascinating there. I think there are, all that you say seems to me correct, but it seems to me in addition, I should say, mm-hmm. and I also think that there are, there is at least one other way that something can become incommunicable. And that is when there is no one left with whom to communicate. Sure. Right. So, you know, I, I cannot communicate 
um, we, I, I'm thinking of a story by Tommaso Landolfi uh, um, in which someone learns a unique language that is he is taught a language. He's told that it's a certain language. The person who teaches him disappears from his life forever. And it turns out it's not that language. He finds professors of that language and nope, it's not that language. He writes this extraordinary poem, this amazing epic in this language, and no one can read it. And no one can even believe whether or not it's really a poem because he's the only speaker of the language. So the greatness of his thoughts become incommunicable because they cannot there's no one to receive the communication. The co-incommunication is crucial. And so here, when those three die, we're left with, with the idiot, with the, the one. And at this point, having become the empty nut entirely, uh, it's right that he now becomes capitalized because he's no longer mortal. Mm. Right? right? The last line is that the grim idiot at the gate is deathless and eternal there. So he has ceased to be mortal Right. Whatever he was, he no longer is human. And that fourth can persist because he has lost the ability to think of anything that is not already built into the city of the end of things. Um, and, and yet Lampman wants to communicate what that means. So Lampman is trying to communicate the incommunicable part of the reason to have poetry. Mm. <laughs> I, I should point That's out, right. by the way, that, that the, the, the use of Grimm here, uh, where did that line go? Where's, where's Grimm? <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. Well, the Grimm idiot at the gate. Yes. Deathless and eternal there. Thank you. Yes. Um, Grimm comes from uh, an, an old root that means angry. And the word grim is actually a noun at one point in the history of English, meaning a, uh, a haunting spirit. It, it yes, means that in the 17th century. Mm. There's a legends of the graveyard grims, which literally mm. took the form of giant spectral hounds who guarded cemeteries. I, I want to know more about that. Uh, that's awesome. Uh Boy, I, I note again the wheel. Uh, along the slacking wheel shall lie, and flagging at a single breath, the fires that molder out and die, the roar shall vanish at its height. This isn't hell of the normal kind. This is a hell of, of you know, when, when those three in the Iron Tower die or stop, then the the hell turns off. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know if that makes, makes it no, no. Uh, a good thing or a bad thing, but um, yeah, the wheel slows down and seems again, a connection with uh, thematically with the machine stops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's another poem um, that I, I, I had this feeling about that. This is a science fiction poem about, again, uh, it's a post-World War II poem, but it isn't. It's from, in fact, uh, wait a second, I think it might be from exactly 100 years before the end of World War II, uh, The Valley of Unrest by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I, oh, yes. Every time I read this poem, I think, 
it's it is about it is a a dying earth a um a fascinating science fiction story of the future i mean this less so with the, the mechanisms but let me read it to you and see what you think once it smiled a silent dell where the people did not dwell they had gone unto the wars trusting to the mild-eyed stars nightly from their azure towers to keep watch above the flowers in the midst of which all day the red sunlight lazily lay now each visitor shall confess the sad valley's restlessness nothing there is motionless nothing save the airs that brood over the magic solitude ah by no wind are stirred those trees that palpitate like the chill seas around the misty hebrides ah by no wind those clouds are driven that rustles through the unquiet heaven unceasingly from morn till even over the violets that there lie in myriad types of the human eye over the lilies that there wave uh, over the lilies that there that wave and weep above a nameless grave they wave from out their fragrant tops eternal dews come down in drops they weep from off their delicate stems perennial tears descend in gems they wave they weep and the tears as they as they well from the depth of each pallid lily bell give a trickle and a tinkle and a knell and to me that is like what happened to the people well they went off to the wars now they're all dead (laughs) and the valley is alive um but not with human life um, Eric, you and I did a story um, for Reading Short and Deep uh, that's uh, it's about uh, kind of the machines not stopping, the machines realizing that the masters are dead. Um, I want to say by Brian Aldiss. I'm trying to remember. Oh, yes. Right um, you um, mean the ones where they go after, they, they gather together and, and go, the, the farm machinery and so yes, on? Yes, yes. And they go on a quest. Uh, to find yes. a purpose, and what did they? F- ah, but who can replace a man? Is that the one? Sure. I think that's yes. it. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, from June 1958. So that's a, a story where the machines continue. They don't stop at the at the man's death, but once once they find a last human being alive in a cave somewhere, all their plans for their own existence to continue disappear and they have to go back to their rigid mechanization i see this poem uh the city of the end of things as as a fascinating component of of the of the sort of dialogue of science fiction and fantasy from uh, just a missing piece i'd never heard of this 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 guy archibald lampman you know and I, i knew about poe for a long time and i knew uh, you know about a lot of these guys, and yet this is a missing is this is a missing piece in the puzzle of 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 this fascinating dialogue that seems to be going on maybe independent of of even people knowing. I don't know that Lampman was obsessed with Poe, um, but they're certainly looking at the world and and seeing things other people aren't seeing and writing beautiful poems about them. Well, it seems he was certainly 
remembered by some people because he said there are several Clark Ashton Smiths at the City of Destruction and the City of the Titans, two poems that strongly echo this written after. Mm. But then you have uh, Hal and Ellison's City at the Edge of Forever, the famous uh, short story that was also a Star Trek episode about mm-hmm. a great automated city that's been a, more or less abandoned and is just you know carrying on and on through its own, left to its own devices. And it, it's the, the similarity in titles and themes just seem a bit too too close. So I think mm-hmm. um, I know this public this was publishing a an anthology of. Uh, victorian verse and i imagine more than a few people sort of you know came across the, this verse and maybe nothing else by him but it sowed you know plenty of seeds down the years absolutely it was actually uh first published in the atlantic monthly which is a you know march 1894 very uh well-known magazine at the time um i mean i i don't know how much time people spent would spend you know pouring over every poem at the end because i've read a lot of the poems in atlantic monthly and they're utterly forgettable but this one um not utterly forgettable at least uh, to me um so it's it's entirely possible that somebody you know they pick it up and they go who is this guy what what amazing stuff we're seeing here but it, it also it strikes me as so different from the from the mainstream and it, you know it's not a nature poem <laughs> it's not a uh it's not a romantic, uh, beautiful countryside, um, flowers are nice kind of poem. It's uh, it's out of the mainstream, I would have thought, but it 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 feels um, being published in a mainstream magazine. It's hard to imagine uh, it not being more prominent. But maybe it's maybe it's the it's how how complex it is. Is that you know Jesse that <clears throat> when we were discussing Lampman's thunderstorm uh-huh. uh, rooting short and deep one of the things that we we recognized was that the praise of Lampman as a nature poet in many ways is mis misplaced because we f- we found specific readings uh, as people writing essays about that poem that talk about how Lampman creates this image of an onrushing a thunderstorm that then passes. Right. But in fact, it doesn't pass. No. Right At the end of that poem, everything is beaten down by that thunderstorm. And it seems to me that, that what we have here, <clears throat> excuse me, what we have here in Lampman is a much grimmer uh, poet than his reputation. And I, so if people, going back to the notion of fashion, if people come to Lampman at, at belatedly, I mean, he's, he's fallen out of fashion, they come to Lampman and think, ah, oh, yes, well, here is a Canadian Keats. And they read him, why, they're disappointed. Mm-hmm. And those who don't come to him uh, at all because they doesn't have a different reputation, they don't know how to find him. What we need to do is have people come to Lapman and say, not what category does he fit into, but indeed, what does he say? And in terms of the this ongoing tradition of the machine stopping in the city that goes on about its own business and so on, there are a number of ways to portray this. Um, 
And one of those ways, <clears throat> excuse me, it, quite famously is Bradbury's story called The City, in which the city is itself still mechanized. And when beings come to it, the city sets about killing them. It is, it is, it is angry that it has been created and it's, it's creators uh, taken away and it's going to protect itself against any other in intelligent beings forever. It's a, it's a chilling, it's a chilling uh, story, but it is also fundamentally a romantic one because we're supposed to feel how terrible it is to be confronted with this city that the city and the people are inimical to each other. But Lampman understands that the city is the creation of the people. It's not that the city is inimical to people. It's that the very works and days, to again quote a title of uh, Hesiod, um, the very works and days of man may ultimately be inimical to man. Because man cannot be eternal. At least no individual can. That's hubris. And if we, if we try to be perfect and get rid of our imperfections, that's when we fall. The city represents the fallen world. To go back to the romantics, the world is too much with us, late and soon getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. What is there in nature that is ours? Here, Lampman points to a time when we have destroyed nature, trying to make it ours. Ah, I um, I just realized that there's another Bradbury piece that again is 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 right in that in this zone, right? Um, I just want to read from it here. A dog whined, shivering on the front porch. The front porch recognized the dog's voice and opened. The dog, once huge and fleshy but now gone to bone and covered with sores, moved in and through the house, tracking mud. Behind it whirred angry mice, angry at having to pick up mud, angry at inconvenience. For not a leaf fragment blew under the door, but what the wall panels flipped open and copper scraps rat, co copper scrap rats flashed swiftly out. The offending dust, hair, or paper seized in miniature steel jaws was raced back to the burrows. There, down tubes which fed into the cellar, it was dropped into a sighing vent of an incinerator which sat like evil ball in a dark corner. The dog ran upstairs, hysterically yelping at each to each door, at last realizing, as the house realized, that only silence was there. It sniffed the air and scratched the kitchen door. Behind the door, the stove was making pancakes, which filled the house with a rich baked odor and the scent of maple syrup. The dog frothed at the mouth, lying in the door, at the door, sniffing, its eyes turned to fire. It ran wildly in circles, biting its own tail, spun in a frenzy, and died. It lay in the parlor for an hour. That's uh, from that's the penult. That's from the penultimate story in the Martian Chronicles. It's there right. will come soft rains. Exactly. Right. Perfect yep. example, Jesse. And in that story, in that story, we uh, come to understand that the reason that the automated house is still there, but there are no people, is because there's been an atomic uh, war. And if I recall the story correctly, we see the blast shadows of the family mm -hmm. 
on the uh, exterior wall of the house. So they must have been standing outside seeing the light of the bombs that fell. And that's all we see of human beings in that story is the shadow of them having been created by their own human technology. It's a, it's a perfect example. But I would point out as well that the next and last story of that book, um, The Million Year Picnic, suggests that if you get rid of that technology, if you don't let it run ahead of us too fast, we will be able to regain paradise which is what the family in the very next and last chapter of that composite novel do. There is ultimately hope. Bradbury is a, an incredibly positive romantic, even though he gives us visions like the one you just <laughs> quoted. But Lampman is not so foolish. <laughs> right? Well, so the, the Bradbury story, though, um, I recently discovered, it uh, takes its name from a poem written about the First World War, called, mm. he's called They Will Come Soft Rains by Sarah Teasdale. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, which goes, They will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pools singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war, not one will care at last when it's done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we are, um, we are very dangerous for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to, to put to put Lampman in the company of the kind of authors we have seen here, uh, we're, we're finding him in a way uh, resonating with, be they Coleridge, Keats, Shelley, Poe, or even Sarah Teasdale, whose poem is, is effective, um, really suggests that this is a poet who should not be forgotten. And perhaps a disservice has been done to him by seeing him as an epigone, right? He's just the late Canadian Keats. Not at all. Right. I, I think we got a show, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Jim, you. That's a pleasure a... talking with you. And, and you, sir. <laughs> I Thank wanted you. to ha have you guys on the same show because... Uh, you're you're the two guys I turn to for the the scholarship, one for uh, science fiction, the other for fantasy. But I, I know <laughs> both of you are well familiar with each. But um, Jim Moon does these uh, these amazing long podcasts where he just recounts all the fascinating things he's discovered that you know I think are amazing and brings great analysis. And and Eric, you do the same, exact same thing, not not with. Uh, you know your own separate podcast, but I, I hear it with you every week when we do these uh, these uh, short short pieces. So I'm glad um, we got to do a little crossover here and um, and and talk long. I mean, I don't think this poem could have been 
you know, even if we're really concise, I don't think we could talk about this even short piece in half an hour and give it any kind of justice. <laughs> well, there's just so many layers to it. <laughs> so many. It's so, it's so many. it's marvelous. One of the things that I had, first of all, I want to thank you, Jesse, for for setting this up. And Jim, thank you for letting me share the conversation with you. It really uh, great pleasure. Um, it, one of the things that that I would do if I had, which I don't any uh, on my current computer, if I had some good uh, text analysis software here, uh, I'm just astonished whenever my eye or ear picks out places where the words recur. I mm-hmm. mean, like you know, idiot without a capital and idiot with a capital, mm-hmm. or the word grim, or the word death. I mean, there are words that get repeated uh, so strategically. I have mm-hmm. a feeling that if we did a just did a a, a word count, uh, did a you know, we would find that we we could line up the words that get used the most and 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 find the theme being revealed here. And mm-hmm. I don't believe for a minute that Lampman set out to do it that way. I think he just has such a deep feeling for what it is that he's about that uh, as he shapes and revises and so on, th- that's what what he manages to create. He's he's really a good poet. Yeah. I'm embarrassed that, that I'd never heard of him before you said, Eric, I think you should read some of this stuff. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 